Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 857 with Stephanie Robson. We're going over part two of kitchen design and layout. A lot of the things I've designed have been for large facilities, but what I've learned from large facilities certainly apply to restaurant kitchens as well. So I want to focus on some of the nitty gritty stuff. It's going to get very geeky. So brace yourself. Are you ready for it? Factors success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Nowadays, people don't want to speak face-to-face. They rather communicate via text message and keep it anonymous. Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is convenient to you. And I think the most valuable aspect of Talk to the Manager is that you give people an opportunity to vent before they go public and write a negative review. Sometimes people just want to be heard and Talk to the Manager gives them that opportunity to be heard. Plus, you don't have to worry about your information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the phone number that Talk to the Manager provides. Also, with Talk to the Manager, it's like having a secret shopper. People will tell you any issues they come across at your restaurants, whether you want to hear them or not, but they'll be brought to your attention and that will help you improve your business. Show your guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food cost in real time. Margin Edge gives you your prime cost daily, so there's no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets instant insights to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends with supply chain disruption and labor shortages. Making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge is going to cover your onboarding costs. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. What's going on, Unstoppables, and welcome to part two of our three-part series with Stephanie Robson. Uh, This is going to be a ton of information today, uh, and we're going to be talking from everything about storage, shelving, uh, prep space, trash, critters, production space, the line, ventilation, 
dish pit, like everything. There's going to be so much covered in today's conversation. Uh, I do want to let you know that towards the end of today's conversation, I would say the last uh, like 30% of today's chat is heavy on the visual. So I highly recommend that you guys subscribe to our YouTube channel. What you can actually do is head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash eight five seven and we will embed the video component of today's interview right into the show notes and you guys can actually click on that image and head over to watch that video at youtube and when you're there why don't you do me a favor and subscribe because we could use your support and because you don't want to miss out on any of these awesome videos we have coming after you so Really great episode today, part two again of Kitchen Design and Layout, and uh, be sure to join us live next week, same time as uh, we were this, actually this is, the day this was getting published was the day we, re- we recorded it. We actually recorded this at 10 a.m. this morning, uh, and we're publishing it I'm right off the heels of having it ready. So next week, January 27th at 10 a.m. Eastern, be sure to join us live by joining the network, restaurantstoppablenetwork.com, uh, and we're going to be going deep into equipment Anything you can think of, come with your questions. Stephanie is just a wealth of knowledge. All right, here she is, Stephanie Robson. With excitement, allow me to welcome back on the show for part two of our three-part workshop series on kitchen design and layouts, uh, Emirate. Of course, I, I have so much anxiety over trying to spit this word out. Emeritus uh, faculty, the Hotel School of Cornell University, Stephanie Robson. Stephanie, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm so unstoppable. <laughs> I need to change my title. I know. I, I would be unstoppable if I didn't have to spell out that weird word every time I introduce you. Uh, so yeah. today, today we're covering part two of this three-part workshop. Uh, the last time Stephanie was with us, it was episode 855, and we covered where to start. Today, we're going to be talking about all the things you don't know until you know, uh, the the handy hints. And we have... We have um, images, visuals, uh, what's the, the actual correct term? I can't think of the term for what you're going to be showing us. The floor I'm going to show a couple of floor plans. Yes, floor plans. And uh, it's going to be an action-packed, full of information session. So uh, why don't we just get out of the way? Uh, I mean, are you going to continue with your, your the uh, the success quote and mantra we, we had last time, or do you have a new one for us? I'm going to keep the one I was using, which is be sure you are right, then full steam ahead. Be sure you are right, then full steam ahead. I love it. So let's just get right into it. Where to start? Get get into it. Sure. Well, what I want to talk about is parts of the kitchen and some sort of handy hints for each one and things that I've learned the hard way, having designed a lot of kitchens. A lot of the things I've designed have been for large facilities, But what I've learned from large facilities certainly apply to restaurant kitchens as well. So I want to focus on some of the nitty gritty stuff. It's going to get very geeky. So brace yourself. Geek out, sister. Go for it. Um, (laughs) So take us to the beginning. Yeah. Well, I want to start with um, storage, which I know is very sexy. I'm sure half of the listeners already gone. Oh, I'm out. But storage is one of those things that you can actually save yourself a lot of money if you do a few key things. So one of them is make sure you know what you need to store, because a lot of people forget all the other stuff that we need to store in a kitchen. You think about the food, you think about beverages, you know, alcohol, beer, whatever. But we forget about storing things like paper products or broken furniture or the baby booster seat, all that kind of stuff. So a really good place to start is make a list of all the stuff you think you're going to need to store. That's the first thing. And then... Think about space as being three-dimensional. If you joined us last time, 
I would mention to you that we talked about space being 3D. I'm going to reinforce that here because there's places to store stuff all over your kitchen. And a lot of people don't realize it, you know, under staircases, um, certainly mounted on walls, certainly underneath things. So don't forget about that 3D storage. So going back to thinking about what you need to store, what are the biggest things that you see restaurateurs miss? You already mentioned the three booster seats, broken furniture, paper products. What else? Certainly outdoor furniture, right? If you have an outdoor space, a patio or something like that, where that furniture goes when you're not using it. Now, maybe you're in a sunbelt location and you're always using it. And hey, lucky you where we are right now. It's a little chilly for that kind of thing. Um, Another one is if you have live entertainment and you've got bands coming in, they have cases, they have stuff. Where's that going to go when they're actually performing? And then the, the last one, which is for everybody, regardless of where you are, whether you have entertainment or not, is your employees are going to have stuff, right? Their coats and their backpacks. And if you're in a cold location, you're going to have bulky boots and things that people need to change out of. Those have to be somewhere. You don't want them in the kitchen itself because it's going to clutter things up and get in the way. So those are storage elements as well. Okay, so think about what you need to store and think about the space, the three-dimensional space that goes unused, like you said, under stairwells, the walls. Uh, Pick it up there. I mean, were there any other things that come to mind as far as uh, the three-dimensional space, the space that we have that we just don't utilize? Sure. I mean, most people don't think about space like, as I mentioned, under staircases or underneath prep tables. We're going to talk about prep spaces and areas you're cooking in a minute. And there's all kinds of nooks and crannies you can use for storage. And this is where last time we talked about visiting other kitchens and kind of walking around and getting a sense of what works and what doesn't. If you start paying attention to places where you see that they haven't got clutter Ask them where they're storing stuff or ask to see their storage areas because people will use really innovative places that you never thought of. My favorite one, um, the original Union Square Cafe in New York City, and until they moved to the new location, they used a stairwell, the wall of the stairwell for storing things up high because once your head sort of passes the stair, you got all that space up there. So they had things they didn't need very often stuck up on the wall in the stairwell which I thought was really quite clever. So when it comes to using the wall, are there any like apparatuses, tools, things that people see? One thing that I've seen that I thought was pretty cool is like, if you look, if you go into a garage and you see the stuff that that people use on the garage, like the garage walls, like the little pins, uh, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about? I've seen those. Like a pegboard kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's what they're called. Uh, Are there any tools that people use to leverage to, to, to really utilize wall space? What do, what do you see? Well, there's there's really two ways you can use wall space. One is something like a pegboard, but I wouldn't recommend that for a kitchen. Instead, what you can do is have, you know, whether it's your contractor or if you're just handy with a masonry drill, you can put up essentially a stain or a, a chrome wire grid and just hang things on it, you know, whether it's utensils or pots and pans or whatever. Um, another way to go is with uh, chrome wire shelving that is actually perpendicular to the wall surface. And you can put up, for example, let's say you've got big cases of cups or lids or, you know, things that are very lightweight, get those up high on a wall because they're easy to get up there because they're lightweight. 
And they're big and bulky things that are going to take up a lot of floor space. So if you get them up on the wall, whether it's near where your coffee equipment is or it's you know close to where your servers are going back and forth to get stuff to stock the front of house, things like paper products, I like to put up high as long as they are lightweight. So when you say um, room sh- um, shelving, you're talking about the baker's rack, right? Just the the good the traditional yeah, because that's a, a great segue actually. Because there's different kinds of shelving you can buy, and I want to tell you some ways to save some money. Okay. Because the basic chrome wire shelving, some people use its brand name Metro shelving. You might have heard. Um, it's the the stuff that's adjustable. And it, it has, you know, essentially a bunch of parallel wires. And so you get air movement through it, which is good. It's what you want. That's a good product. Um, but don't buy it for your dry storage areas, places where you're just storing cans and bags of flour and stuff, because it's relatively expensive. It's a great thing to buy used if you can. But you can go to Ikea or something like that and get their garage shelving. You mentioned a minute ago, Eric, you know, the garages and systems people use. The storage systems that they have for garages are perfectly fine for your dry storage areas. Whereas in your walk-in refrigerators or your walk-in box or whatever you want to call it, people have all kinds of terms for it. You can't use that kind of shelving in there. In fact, you shouldn't even use the standard wire shelving. You need either plastic or plastic coated wire in your walk-in. And that's because the chrome shelving will rust very quickly in a walk-in. And then you won't be able to adjust it and it'll look nasty. Got it. Um, did you mention that, what was the name of that the chrome shelving? Uh, you mentioned the, the brand name. I don't know if it's important, but sometimes I think there's there's a lot of knockoffs out there. And I think there are. Nice, there's so. there's two big brands of shelving that I'm familiar with. One of them is called Metro, M-E-T-R-O. And the other one is called Carryall, C-A-R-I-A-L-L. Those are kind of the big commercial brands. Um, I encourage you, if you're going to buy shelving, and again, don't buy fancy shelving for your dry storage, but if you are going to buy yourself some shelving, get a good brand because the cheaper stuff will bend if you put heavy things on it. And think of all the heavy stuff we're storing, right? Stock pots and number 10 cans of tomatoes. And so if you buy cheap shelving, you're going to be replacing it fairly quickly, or it's going to bend so much you won't be able to adjust it. So spend the money on the good stuff for places where you need it. Got it. And I'm, if I ask you questions, you, if you plan on getting into this stuff later on, just tell me to wait because I will oh, be distracted. Okay. I can bother you. <laughs> You're doing fine. Awesome. Um, beautiful. Take it from there. Okay. So a couple other things about storage just to be aware of. One is you want to make sure that things that are valuable are stored in a place where you can control them. And that sounds like a duh thing, right? But you'd be amazed what's considered valuable to perhaps some of your employees. So sometimes things like oils, Certainly some spices. If you are we're cooking with saffron, for example, saffron is more valuable than gold on a per ounce basis. So, you know, think where you're going to store these things. To say nothing of alcohol, obviously, we want to control where that is stored, not only to make it easy for access when it's time to tap another keg or get another case, but also so you can make sure that the alcohol isn't going somewhere it shouldn't. Yeah. And I'm going to resurface something that you mentioned in our first time, uh, the, the episode 855, when we're talking about where to start, you mentioned front to back, right? Or is that, is, are those the terms you use front to back? Or yeah. Back forward, or forward flow. Forward yeah. You flow. got it. So keep that in the back of your mind too, while you're doing this, this is a little, a little reminder. 
Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned it, Eric, because I like to put sort of the, what I call the main storage area. So like if you've got a dry storage room and your walk-in refrigeration, as close to the back door as you can, assuming the back door is where you're getting your deliveries. Got it. And then the idea is you also want to put some storage close to where you're going to use the items. One of the flaws I see a lot in kitchens is people are going back and forth to get things in and out of storage all the time. Waste so steps. let's talk yeah, like vegetables, right? You're prepping a bunch of vegetables and you, you, know, you get a case out of the walk-in, you prep the vegetables, you put the prep vegetables in a hotel pan, and then you go back and put it in the walk-in. Well, you're probably better off having some maybe under-counter refrigeration or a reach-in refrigerator somewhere closer to where you're going to use those vegetables so that you're not going back and forth to that walk-in all the time. Because every time you open the door to that walk-in, that's costing you money, right? Mm-hmm. Costing you money in utilities. So you're better off having refrigeration and other storage at the point of use whenever possible. I realize that costs more money. Oh, beautiful. So any other tips around shelving that you haven't mentioned yet? Yeah, let me just have a quick look at my notes to see what... Well, this isn't about shelving necessarily, okay. but it is it is a handy hint that I cannot stress enough. Um, keep your chemicals away from your food storage. So you'll probably have chemicals for your wear washing and maybe janitorial chemicals. Do not keep them in the same place as your food supplies, your dry storage. I have horror stories that if we had more time, I could tell you, but you can well imagine the things that can happen. And you may think, oh, you know, who's going to make, the, you know, grab a thing of Clorox and think it's vinegar. You'd be amazed. So that keep, happened? oh my gosh, oh my goodness, don't, don't get me started. I'd have oh. to make another pot of tea just to tell you. <laughs> but I think it's important to have a separate janitorial slash chemical storage area. Things that can kill you in this closet, things that you can eat in this closet. <laughs> things, things that will poison your guests, things that will kill you. Um, and then the last thing is also think where you're going to store recyclables. So if you're selling bottled beer, for example, or and those bottles have to go back to the distributor typically. So you're going to have all these empties around. And often there's little dregs of beer in them and stuff, and they attract flies and who knows what else. So think through, where am I going to keep that stuff so that I'm going to keep my food preparation areas safe and sanitary? Got it. Beautiful. Okay. Um, all right. Take it away right. from there. Okay. So I think we've we've hammered storage a lot. If something else comes to mind, I'll, I'll bring it up. But I want to sort of now move forward through the kitchen from storage into the prep spaces. So where you're actually getting ingredients ready to cook. So you're not actually doing much cooking. You might be making a stock or a sauce or maybe doing some baking. But this is an area that actually doesn't get used all day. So one of the things I think we alluded to in our last conversation was think about your kitchen over time and how you might be able to utilize space at different times of day for different purposes. And prep is one of those things that you can do on the production line if you're not actually cooking now. So people will prep vegetables before service on the cooking line. You just take a sheet pan and slap it on top of the the range if it's not going, and you can use that as prep surface. And for a very small kitchen, that's actually a really good use of space. And if you're starting out as a restaurateur, you want to keep the amount of space that you're paying for as low as is feasible. Not so low that you can't function, but as low as is feasible. So with prep space, think about when am I doing prep? What am I doing? And can I double up on some space I already have to make that more productive space? Other things about prep. Um, If you have a prep table, 
right? And let's say you're going to be prepping vegetables. We were talking about that a moment ago. Where you put the sink on that table makes a lot of difference. So I've seen a lot of prep tables that you can buy, especially inexpensive ones that have the sink on the end of the table. And then you've got this long work surface and people think, oh, this is great. I got all this workspace. Well, if you're doing a lot of prep of vegetables, that's probably not the best thing because you're going to have a case of vegetables that you're going to want to wash and then you're going to peel and cut and do whatever and then put it in some other, whether it's a sheet pan or a hotel pan. So you want the sink in the middle of the table. So you have a dirty end and you have a clean end and you're working over that sink. So ask yourself again, what am I prepping before you buy the prep sinks? So you understand where the sink is best positioned so you can actually work more efficiently with that table. Beautiful. Got it. Okay. Lots of little things to consider. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you're here is because like you don't know until you know and you're, you're dropping gold on us. Keep going. <laughs> can I talk a little trash? Yeah, but go for it. <laughs> the thing is we're talking about prep, right? Yep. Yep. If you're going to generate garbage in your kitchen, it's going to come from two places, either from the prep space or from wear washing. If you're generating a lot of garbage on the, on the cooking line and the serve out line, you've got a problem, right? You're something you're doing wrong, but you're going to have probably quite a bit of waste or garbage coming off the prep area. So ask yourself again, what am I prepping? Am I going to compost? And if so, what kind of containers do I need for the compostable waste? So that's any food scraps essentially, and maybe some paper. Am I going to be recycling cans or other materials that I'm generating in the back of house? And again, how are those going to be handled? In many cities, recycling is required. So find out what the rules are, where you are, so that you are not putting things out in ways that are going to make it difficult for you later. When you think about your garbage can, I mean, this sounds crazy, but the kind of garbage can you choose matters. A lot of people like to use those sort of narrow rectangular ones. The the common term for them is a Slim Jim, which to me sounds like a piece of pepperoni that you would buy, but you know, a Slim Jim. I'm not a big fan of those, even though they don't take much space. But the reason I'm not a big fan of them is they don't, the garbage bags don't fit very well and they're really cumbersome to kind of maneuver. So I kind of like a round, smaller garbage can, ideally on wheels. And then it's really easy to stick a liner in it and you can move it out of the way easily when you don't need it. And that means the prep tables that you want to get, at least one of them should have a space where you can park one of those garbage cans underneath it. Now, I know one of the reasons why this Slim Jim is so appealing is because they sell those magnetic tops that go where it's like a, a narrow enough passage that if a metal goes through it, it, go, it can get stuck to a side. Do they sell uh, similar uh, tools that collect metal like your silverware? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to drop another name brand on you. Rubbermaid makes all this stuff. Uh, they make the Slim Jims. I think that is actually their term for it. Um, they make the round ones. Um, I'm a big fan of the 2620 myself. It's 26 inches in diameter and holds 20 gallons. Um, but you can get those magnetic rings for them. And I'm glad you mentioned that because actually, Eric, the place where you're more likely to lose cutlery is not in prep. It's at wear wash. Yeah. So not only do you want those magnetic rings on any trash can, you can actually in your wear washing area, which we'll be talking about in more detail, you can actually put a magnet on the, the ring, the scrapping ring, if you have one in your dish table. And again, assuming you're using non-stainless steel, right? Stainless steel will not go to magnets as we talked about last mm-hmm. time. Um, but you can get those attachments for any kind of garbage can if you're working with Rubbermaid. Awesome. Um, I mean, there's so many little details you would never like. 
I would never think about different uses or different designs of trash receptors. Like that's just, you're totally nerding out right now. Uh, anything this else regarding it makes a difference, right? Yeah, I this love it. That, that uh, you know, anyone can say, Oh, I need a prep table here. But when you start thinking about how am I going to use this and how many, how many people will be working in that space at the same time? Do I have places where for them to stand and work? Uh, you got to kind of map it out at first. I mean, this is one thing too, when we think about like, like lost steps, uh, like is, is can you have too many trash receptors? Like, is have have you seen? Is there an example where you just see people that have figured out like if I can have a, a trash a trash receptor in multiple different places that that alone is way more ergonomic? Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you can say you can have too many because if it starts to get in the way of yeah. doing what you need to do, but you know, as I'm cleaning out a kitchen and I'm talking to somebody, but I talk about you know what are you prepping. How is it coming? Like, is it coming from the farmer and it's got mud all over it and it's amazing? Or are you getting stuff from your distributor and it's all in plastic bags and away you go? That helps me think through, you know, where do I put a garbage can and where do I need a pre-rinse faucet? Maybe if I've got a lot of stuff that's coming right from farmers, it's a farm to table kind of operation, I might need a faucet at the back door where I take goods in and give them a quick clean and put them in my own whether it's a, a Rubbermaid or Cambro container or my own containers to go in my walk-in, because sometimes the way you get uh, critters into your kitchen can be through deliveries, especially in uh, produce. And so if you are taking stuff out and putting it in your own containers before it goes in your walk-in, you need a place to do that. So those are the things you have to think about before you start laying out the kitchen. You know, how is my, my stuff arriving? How often is it arriving? So am I getting deliveries every day? Or am I getting a big, you know, delivery once every two weeks and I got to find a place for that all to live while I'm putting it away? Those are all important questions to ask yourself before you start laying out the kitchen. Love it. So, so far we've covered uh, what you think about what you need to store. Think about where you need to store it. Think about shelving. We talked about prep spaces. We talked about where to put the trash. Anything else we haven't discussed uh, regarding trash before we take our first break to thank our sponsors? Yeah, there's one other little thing, which is on the theme of critters. Um, so a lot of people have ways to try to eliminate either insects or crawling things or, or uh, mammals in your kitchen. The two that I recommend, you know, one of those, we call them bug zappers, right? Everybody sort of vernacularly calls them that. If you look for them online, they're called a fly eliminator. Um Note to self, do not put that in a prep area <laughs> because, as I'm sure you know, right, the bugs fly into it and sometimes you get quite dramatic uh, extermination and bits of bug fly everywhere. I'm sorry if you are sensitive to these things and you're listening, um, but all, put all the that Buddhists over your back apologize. door. <laughs> so put it over your back door. The other thing that you can get is something called a rodent sentry. And I know that sounds like a cat, but it's not. It's essentially it's a little box that just emits a very high frequency sound and we don't hear it. Uh, maybe small children can. I don't know. But adults can't hear it. And but it really drives rodents nuts. So it's not enough. You're going to have to be really clean as well to keep rodents out of your kitchen. But if you put one of those little rodent sentries and a fly eliminator around your back door, you'll solve yourself quite a few little problems. So you see often uh, these these little like square rectangular black boxes uh, for rodents. Uh, mm -hmm. is, is there a, a preferred method that you see people using that is most effective? Is it one you of mean the, the sentries, the, the sound boxes or something else? Well, is that what I'm looking at when I'm walking around? And I see these behind are those, those. Those are just emitting sound. They're not trapping okay. rodents. 
Uh, I don't, I'm not sure. I haven't seen, you don't want to have traps really in your kitchen. What about like outside, um, like at your, like your, like out yeah. by like the back, like there's usually like a trap or something or are those literally just emitting noise? Well, it could be a sentry, a rodent sentry emitting noise and you know that you want to put it down low enough so that it's close to where the rodents are. Um, rodents typically don't go up. They typically stay as low as possible. Um, in terms of a trap, um, that's where you're going to be paying your exterminator. Um, and they will place them based on where they think the, the most traffic is. Um, and actually, maybe another session we can talk about extermination because okay. there's all stuff to know about that, too. Put um, it on the back burner. I like it. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so we'll, we'll, put, we'll put critters more in the back burner. Beautiful. Okay, with that said, is there anything else regarding critters you want to drop on us before we take our break? Well, let's take a little break and then we'll move on to production areas. All right. We'll be right back after thanking our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Look, nowadays people rather send you a text message than speak to you directly face to face. That's just the way people choose to communicate and there's not much we can do about it. Or is there? Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is also convenient to you. Don't worry about personal information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the number that Talk to the Manager provides. You can even delegate customer feedback and divide the workload amongst your managers. Multiple managers can receive these texts. When one manager replies to a customer, the other staff will see their responses too. What I personally love most about Talk to the Manager is that you can fix issues immediately in private before complaints go public online. Many times when people do write a negative review, it's because they just want to be heard and talk to the manager gives them that outlet to be heard before they bring it publicly and drag your name through the mud. Plus with talk to the manager, get issues brought to your attention, whether it's an issue with your restaurant service product or facility, your guests will let you know whether you want to hear it or not, but this will help you improve using talk to the manager is so intuitive that no technology is required. If you can send a text message, you can use talk to the manager. Show guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. That's www.talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and uh, we covered a lot, but I know I mean, I know you, you want to take us through some floor plans. Is that yet, or, or is that still later on? Still later on, if okay. we if we get there, okay. we have so much to talk about that we may not get there, but that's get fine. after it. <laughs> All right. So we were talking about prep areas, um, and I want to segue from prep areas now into what I'm going to call production. And production is really where you're cooking the food, right? Yeah. A lot of restaurateurs call that the line, um, and there's a lot to know about how to make these work really well. One of the things that is probably going to cost you the most in your kitchen is the ventilation hood that goes over your cooking line. So anything you can do to make that cooking line as short as is feasible for you is going to be a good investment. Um, But you don't want to make it so short that it limits your options or that you're making some bad choices. So let me talk a little bit about good sort of practice for designing the equipment on your cooking line. And then we'll talk about the hood and some other attributes of this area. So when you're figuring out what you need on your cooking line, you know, first thing you're going to do is look through your menu and say, okay, what, what kinds of cooking equipment do I need? Try to avoid having a piece of equipment that only produces one menu item. 
You want some flexibility. And we'll talk more about this in our next conversation next week when I talk about equipment selection. But once you know what equipment you think you're going to need, one of the things that a lot of restaurateurs don't realize is you can't put a fryer next to anything that has an open flame, like a saute range or a charbroiler, anything where you have an exposed flame. Obviously, you don't want that close to fat. Uh, that's coming off the fryer. So the rule is you need 17 inches between a fat uh, a fryer and anything with this open flame. And some people will try to save space by putting a 17 inch high plate, like a piece of stainless steel between your fryer and other parts of your cooking line. I'm not a big fan of that, even though it saves you space. The reason I'm not a big fan of it is, one, that space, that the 17 inches, you can use that for mise en place. You can use that as, as sort of landing space, which really makes your life easy. And if you're, if you're smart, if you position your fryer in such a way that you have that landing space on the left, so when you are dumping things out of your fryer, you've got a surface to put them on. That's a really good idea. We'll come back to that in a second. But... If you have that upright plate between your fryer and, say, a saute range, now if you have one employee trying to work both of those pieces of equipment at the same time, like on a quiet day, maybe it's Monday or Tuesday, you're keeping your staffing a little lower on days like that, it's a little hard to use that station as one person. If you know you're always going to have a person who's dedicated to frying, that's all they're going to do, and you're always going to have one person dedicated to other parts of the line, Sure, go ahead and put that plate in. But I like to build flexibility in because you never know when your labor is going to change, when your menu is going to change. So you want to give yourself enough flexibility that you can maneuver no matter what goes on. So basically, it's just a flow. So if, if you have somebody working and, they, and they're covering two stations, they, they can't go over the equipment with their whatever they have in their hands, they have to step step back and go over. And it's just a little. It's a, it's it's hazardous, basically. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's yeah. hazardous. You know, you you talked about you know things where where people get hurt with chemicals. The place people get hurt in kitchens the most is around the fryer. And you know, yeah, makes sense, right? This is this is hot, slippery, nasty stuff. So I like to make sure the fryer is not the last item on a cooking line next to an aisle. I always want to have the fryer sort of protected because if it's the last item on the line and people are walking by, especially if they're hustling, right? They're in the kitchen. They go, oh my gosh, I need to get something from you're the making back. making a turn. Yeah, taking a turn and you, your feet go out from underneath you. And even if you've got mats, you know, that that's a greasy station. So I never put the fryer at the very end of the line. I have mentioned also about this idea of putting a surface to the left of the fryer. And the the reason for the left is most people are right-handed. I know some of you might be left-handed and there's evidence that people who are left-handed are more creative, but I do know that typically most people are right-handed. And that means when you're taking stuff out of a fryer, you're using your right hand to lift a basket. And if you're dumping say fries or onion rings or something, you're going to take that basket and cross your body to the left And you want to be able to empty it on something that's right there. What you don't want to do is turn around, right, and have to empty it behind you because now you've got this basket full of dripping fat that you're going to go right over the area you're standing in. So you want to have a dump station, a landing station, a dump station to the left of your fryer. So a lot of people use that as the spreader plate or the separation between the fryer station and saute or charbroiling. 
Got it. Great little tips. Um, I'm loving this. Keep going. Okay. Um, another one is when you are planning your cooking line and you've thought through your equipment, if you can plan it so that anything that is a tall piece of equipment is at either end of the cooking line. So whether it's a reach in refrigerator, which by the way, you know, yes, they're working hard next to cooking equipment, but you can put a reach in right next to the line. And I think it's a good idea because if you've got tall items, a convection oven, um, an upright broiler, um, uh, a big deck oven. I mean, we were chatting, Eric, you and I, about deck ovens not too long ago. You know, those are big beasts, right? But the nice thing about putting tall things at either end of your cooking line is it helps channel the grease-laden vapor that's going up into your hood. So if you don't have tall equipment that you need, don't go and buy it just for that purpose. But if you already have a deck oven on your line or reach-ins or, or a convection oven, try to get them on the ends. And the things in the middle, directly under the hood, are the ones that are emitting the most grease-laden vapor. So your fryers, your sauté range, char broilers, griddles, uh, kettles, if you're using like a little tilt kettle or a tilt skillet. Some people call that a braising pan. Those are all good things to put in the middle. So I'm curious, earlier you mentioned you want to be mindful of your prep space because the, the cooking space you have determines the size of your hood. Uh, yes. But we're talking about just hot prep, right? Not necessarily cold prep. I just want to make sure that. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So cold prep or prep that is, you know, you're, whether you're producing, cutting vegetables or, or doing anything that doesn't require heating, that can happen almost anywhere that's sanitary. And so that's why I like, if you want to use the cooking line in the morning for, for cold prep, you certainly can. But things that need to be under a hood, and there's really two kinds of hood. There's the kind that it or takes grease-laden vapor. Um, so that's the, the class one hood. So that's the one you see over fryers and saute ranges and that kind of thing. And that's those are pricey. Um, spend the money on a good hood. We'll talk about that a little on our next session as well. So a little trailer for you. Yeah, that we'll has come up in the past. It is, it, yeah, we'll save that for later. But we, one other thing that came, came to mind, you mentioned, um, I can't remember where it was you mentioned this, uh, I think you said don't buy one piece of equipment that's only used for one item, which is great advice. But one thing I have seen is doing one thing really well as being a trend throughout the industry for a a multitude of reasons. Uh, What does get into that and what that means for like design kitchen design, doing one thing really well and how that saves money. Sure. I'm going to use an example, Um, a restaurant in San Francisco. It's actually a chain of restaurants called Suvla. And uh, it's S-O-U-V-L-A, if you want to look them up. Um, Suvla is a Greek fast casual, and everything or almost everything comes off the rotisserie. This is something you don't see in a lot of kitchens these days is rotisserie because, again, it takes quite a bit of space. And you think, oh, well, all it can do is, you know, cook chickens and other cuts of meat on a rotary, you know, okay, fine. But it's the signature for this restaurant. And so that. Uh, that rotisserie is front and center. It's in the front of house. You can see it, um, which is great. And you could argue it is a single purpose piece of equipment, but you can produce many different dishes off of it. So what I'm thinking about more is pieces of equipment that really do not lend themselves to anything other than one item at all. Like, for example, if your concept is a pizza concept, of course, a pizza oven is going to be the focus. Um, but you don't want to do something like, um, 
Have you seen these things in the convenience stores for keeping hot dogs warm? They yeah, sort of roll really. back and forth. They're kind only, of you're only mesmerizing. A hot dog on that. <laughs> yeah, oh, they always get kind of shriveled and scary. That thing is literally called a hot dog corral, um, and you know that's all it can do is you know it just warms a cylindrical meat. That's kind of its only function. So you try to avoid having pieces of equipment that can only really handle one item in one way, unless it is the only thing you're preparing. Yes. And you mentioned Suvla, Charles Belial. I'm, I'm going to destroy his last name. He's a graduate. Billilies. And I know he's a graduate of Cornell, which is assuming is how you know him. He was episode 378. If you want to check out that episode, it was a really great chat. Um, I just felt like whenever I, I hear uh, Restaurant Unstoppable alums uh, being mentioned on the show, who are also Cornell alums for you, um, mm-hmm. I have to, I got to give them a little shout out and let people know. You can listen to those episodes. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that comes to mind for me is like a French fry slicer. Like, you know, like you're not going to use that for anything else. Or not a slicer, but you know, I'm talking about like a, the, the, the tool. Like, you don't want to leave. Yeah, lose, if you, like, but if like hand cut store. fries are a really big part of what you're doing and I mean, part of your brand, yeah, then yeah. If you yeah. burger and fries and that's all you do, like, that's a good example of when it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, we do recognize if it is the signature item for what you're doing, hand cut fries take a long time. <laughs> there, It's a lot of prep. So this is the balance, right? Is there sometimes a signature item is worth it because it, totally sets you apart. But if it means a lot of space, a lot of labor, a lot of specialty equipment, ask yourself, is this thing good enough (laughs) for the buck you're spending? Yeah. So right now we're talking about the line, things to consider with design around the line. Uh, Do you want to keep on going on the line or are we moving on? I got a couple more things about the line. I think it's useful to know. Um, We talked a little bit about refrigeration. So a lot of people sort of go back and forth on the line. Should I have refrigeration under my equipment or on the other side of the aisle? Usually there's an aisle between the cooking equipment and whether you call it the pass or the chef's table or the serve out counter and whatever you want to call it, that place where you're actually plating up dishes and sending them out for service. That aisle should be about three feet wide, 36 inches, no less than that. And I'm going to say no more than 42 inches or three foot six. If you speak metric, we're talking about about 90 centimeters on the the small end and 110 centimeters on the wide end. And the reason for that is because that prevents you from having to take an extra step. You mentioned earlier, Eric, about making extra steps to put things in the garbage. If that aisle is too wide, your staff is having to make an extra step every time they turn around to put something up for plating or every time they turn around to get something out of refrigeration that usually is underneath that, that pass table. If it's refrigerated drawers that are underneath there, um, refrigerated drawers, a lot of people like them because you don't need to open them as far to get items out. So if you're constantly getting things during service, drawers are probably a better choice than doors. But if you're Putting things in on sheet pans, those 18-inch by 26-inch pans that we see in in restaurants all the time, you need to have doors for that. So as you're thinking through, well, how am I going to handle these products? You can make better choices with what kind of access to your refrigeration you need to have. First ask, what am I using this space for? Like every space needs to be intentional. And then you reverse engineer it from there. Like what is this space used for? What am I going to be doing? And what does that mean for me? Like how, how, like you really have to be ahead of it. It's like, this kind of reminds me of when I was a commercial pilot, 
uh, they teach you, you got to be head of the airplane. You always have to be ahead of the airplane, meaning where am I going and what do I need when I get there? Right. And, and reverse engineering it from that point. That's a, that's a great analogy. Yeah. And in the session that we had a couple of weeks ago, I talked about this idea of programming where you write out how you want this kitchen to operate. As you start thinking through all these details, more things will come to mind. You're like, oh, I totally forgot about, you know, how am I going to move items from prep to hold them for cooking? Are they going to be in hotel pans, those 20 by 12 inch pans? Or are they going to be in big pans? Are they going to be in Cambro tubs? Okay, how, that's going to influence so much about how you lay that space out. So great way of putting it. Be ahead of your cooking. Start backing out from what happens on the line all the way backwards. What else do we want to cover on the line? All right. I'm just looking at my notes here. Oh, another one is what happens underneath your equipment. So I just mentioned refrigeration, right? So when you buy cooking equipment, and I'll talk about this a little bit more next time, but you have lots of choices about whether it's what called countertop equipment, which just sits on a table or if it's equipment that has some kind of base to it. So your saute ranges, charbroilers, griddles, that kind of thing, you usually have some choice about what's under there. And my recommendation is if you can use that space underneath for some kind of storage, whether it's refrigeration. Um, refrigeration is getting better these days. You know, 20 years ago, I would never say go ahead and put refrigeration under a charbroiler. You know, you're asking for a world of hurt, but good quality refrigeration can be acquired for that purpose. But a lot of people just choose to use that for storage for things like saute pans and materials that you're going to be using during service that you don't want to have to go get. Um, A lot of people also forget that when you're using that equipment, you have dirty pots and pans. They have to go somewhere so that they can be picked up and taken over to pot washing. So are you going to have a bus tub or obviously you can't put a hot saute pan directly in a bus tub. So where are the hot ones going to go to cool off when you finished using them? Just like with the food, we got to think about how the utensils are cycling through these spaces as well. Uh, I mean, could you put a, like a, a like a metal uh, bus bucket underneath? Is that, is, are there regulations and issues with that? No. Yeah, Not at all. If you have a if you have a storage base, right, if you order your equipment with a storage base, a lot of people just put hot stuff under there and then let it cool down. And then it is a little tricky for your uh, pot washing people, your porter or whatever the term is you want to use comes to get those. Because if you're in the middle of service, it's kind of awkward. Yeah. But this is, again, where you kind of map out how you want to process things. A lot of restaurants that I've seen have had a, a. a cart or a um, we call it a, an angle cart or an angle rack, those sort of mobile racks that you can slide pans into. Yep. They have one on the end of the line and it just has sheet pans on it and you can put hot stuff on it. Then the and then somebody out. can just roll it away to wash or, it. Or roll the whole thing. That, yeah, that's even better. Uh, you mentioned uh, using the space underneath the, uh, your, your char broiler, right? For refrigeration. Um, maybe a point to say not all refrigerators can handle that and make sure you're, you're purchasing the ones that are designed to handle that. Correct. Absolutely. And this is where working with your dealer is important. And we'll talk about that uh, in a couple of actually our next session next week. Yes. We're going to be talking about equipment, a little teaser. We're going to be covering the, the little nitty gritty stuff all around equipment. So I'm excited for that one. Um, all right. So uh, we're talking about the line right now. I know you mentioned we're going to be talking about ventilation too. Why don't you go to 30,000 feet for me? We're discussing the line. We're, we're going to discuss the ventilation. Is that next? And what else is coming after that? 
Well, we'll talk about ventilation. And then the last sort of part of the kitchen we haven't addressed is cleaning dishes, wear washing. Um, and then hopefully we can talk a little bit about some some good design and some not so good design. Um, the ventilation, I won't spend too much time on because this is one of those things that is going to be designed for you. Um, if you're going into an existing restaurant and it's already there, you still need to get an engineer in because you want to make sure the equipment you're putting under it is appropriate for the hood that you've got. The amount of air movement is really crucial, and that's where you really need to pay someone to help you figure that out. Um, but I mentioned that there are two kinds of hood. The one that everyone thinks about is the one that goes over your cooking line, right? Your class one hood. But you also have to have a hood in most places over your dishwasher because you've got steam coming out of that. And generally, most jurisdictions want that steam to be exhausted out of your space and not sort of spend all, or put all over your employees. So that's a different kind of hood. It's a class two hood. Um, so when you're talking to your engineers, make sure you're very clear about what equipment you're going to be using so they can size everything appropriately. So class one is over your cooking. Class two is over your dishwasher. Dishwasher and anything else that emits steam, but not grease laden vapor. Um, you sometimes can use a class two hood over bake ovens. So if all you're doing is baking and you're not doing anything with the saute range, you're not doing anything with fryers or broilers, you're just doing, you know, pastries or you're just doing bread. Um, you might be able to just get away with having a class two hood. And uh, that's again, where you talk to your engineers, um, but make sure you're getting the right equipment for what you're actually producing. What's the biggest difference between a class one and a class two? Is it like the, is a class one more for like grease particles? Like Correct. heavier, like it's, it's basically moving more volume or heavier, more mass because grease. Well, it's, it's doing that. And also it's filtering out those grease particles. So you can get hoods that have filters that you can take down and wash yourself, or you can get hoods that have their own internal washing system. Those cost more, they're sexier. Um, but a class one hood, you've got to actually get those grease particles out of the air before they go up into your ductwork. And that's where you end up getting buildup and the potential for fire, which is a bad thing. So a class one has to remove, remove that grease. A class two, there is no grease. It's mostly heat and condensation that they're removing. So they're less expensive and less complicated. Now, back to class one, I know the majority that I see in commercial kitchens use this idea of redirecting air flow. So basically, as air is moving, you redirect it and the, the mass of the oil will basically hit the walls because it will want to keep an object in motion, wants to stay in motion. It will keep moving and it will hit the wall and the air gets kind of cleaned out. Are there any other methods that you see that are maybe better or uh, what should we know in, in that regard? Well, what you just described, Eric, is exactly right. All the different kinds of class one hoods use different ways to get the air to hit the walls, as you put it. Yeah. So some of them have a mesh filter. That's often what you might see in the least expensive hoods. And the air hits the mesh filter and it has to move through all those little parts of the mesh. And as it does so, the particulate sticks to the mesh. And then you got to take the mesh out and put it through your dishwasher. You see ones with, with baffles where it's doing the same thing. Um, you can take those baffles out and wash them. Or you can have ones where they have actual water spray inside the hood. Um, and so the, you've got a baffle inside. The uh, air is moving and hitting the baffles. But instead of having to take them out and washing them by hand, you can actually run a cycle, almost like a dishwasher cycle for the hood. And it washes down 
those greasy baffles and takes that greasy, yucky water and funnels it down to a drain that must go to a grease trap. You can't just have that go to a drain or you're going to have grease in your pipes and yes. everybody's unhappy. Yeah, you don't want that. Um, so w- when think- when you, s- you mentioned the the steel, um, I guess it was like the grates almost, not the grates, but the mesh. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a cheaper side. Should we be wary if we see that? Is it? Do we want to try to what, – what are the pros and cons? I mean, what, what should we be considering when it comes to those different options? Well, the there's always a trade-off between – Purchase price and labor. <laughs> so generally, the least expensive approach is that mesh, but it takes much more work to keep it clean. And I usually tell people the mesh ones are probably not as good as the baffle ones um, because either either way, you've got to clean them. But I think the mesh ones are kind of the lowest end. Doesn't mean they can't be good, but you really have to be on top of them. Probably a little bit more and, difficult to wash. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of work. I mean, unless you have the dishwasher, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but you're taking them down. You got to mop inside there. Yeah. It, and it's one of those, it's not a pleasant job. It's like cleaning out your grease trap. And whenever you have unpleasant jobs, people don't want to do them. And if they don't get done, you end up with problems. So if you can design out the potential for problems, it was one of the themes of our last conversation. I sometimes say it's probably better to spend a little more money up front with something that's easier to maintain because you will maintain it. I'm almost hesitant to tell you what my old boss would have us do to clean those grease trap filters. Uh, like, I can only imagine. <laughs> have you ever had anybody use like degreaser chemical on them? Is there something to be said about that? I remember well, just breathing the vapor done. of this stuff and just being just thinking to myself, this cannot be good for me. It's not usually cleaning the grease trap and cleaning the hoods was something you gave to the employee you were angry with, right? Well, I seem to get that job often, so I don't know. Oh dear, oh dear. Maybe he just knew you'd do a good job. I think that that's what I told myself. That's what I told yeah. myself. Um, <laughs> all right. So, anything else regarding? Uh, we talked about the, we got into good detail with the cooking class one and uh, anything we should know about class two that isn't so obvious. Not really. Just know that they're there. Um, and because typically you'll need one in your wear washing, which is a perfect segue to talk about wear washing, because yes. I want to make sure we do a couple of, of points about that as well. If people think about your dishwashing area as being sort of you know, a corner of the kitchen you don't care about. But this is a place also where you can save yourself a lot of money if you plan it correctly. And by correctly, generally we want to have dirty stay with dirty and clean stay with clean. That seems like a no-brainer, right? So you want to think about where either employee servers or kitchen employees are dropping dirty stuff and how it's going to be scraped and scrapped. So you asked about garbage cans in this location. You know, who is doing that? Whether the employees or the, excuse me, again, the servers are racking glasses. Let's say you've got a full service restaurant. Servers are coming out of the dining room with a tray of, of things that they bust or a buster's coming in. So who is going to rack the glasses? So you need an overhead rack so those glasses can sit up there. If the servers are doing it, you probably need a good way for the person who's washing dishes to get that rack so that they can put it through the dish machine. So there are lots of tricks of the trade of creating an overhead rack that you can actually pivot and grab a rack from above and pull it onto the other side. So ask yourself, who's racking glasses? Who is going to be taking cutlery and what happens to it? A lot of places will just want to have a bus tub full of warm, soapy water, and you just throw the cutlery in it so that you can then put it on a special rack to go through the the dish machine. I keep saying DMO because we often talk about dish machine operations in big production kitchens. 
you also need to think about what kind of machine you're going to have and how big it is. And you want to have enough space on the clean side of the machine for at least two racks. What I often see as a bad design is a dish machine kind of shoved in a corner, which is okay in and of itself. It's not a terrible thing, but there's virtually no space for the clean racks to come out and sit and cool off. Because when those racks come out of the dish machine, they are hot, right? You're using usually 180 degree water to rinse those dishes. And if you're reaching for a piece of cutlery that's just come out of a 180 degree dishwasher, that can burn you. So you want about 48 inches outside on the clean side of your dishwasher so that you can have a couple of racks. One can be cooling and one you can be just pulling out. So as your dish uh, employees are working with that stuff, they're not hurting themselves. Beautiful. All great advice. Uh, Does that cover all the dishware stuff you wanted to drop on us or... There's a couple of other points, but I'll make them really brief. Put your pot washing and your dishwashing together. It sounds sort of like a no-brainer, but a lot of restaurants, they'll put a pot sink sort of over by prep, thinking that's more convenient. But a lot of the times you want to have all that wear washing stuff together. Part of it is for staffing, because then you can have one team and that's they can work on both at the same time. You can put a rack in the dish machine and then go wash a pot or two and then come back to the dish machine. Or... Also for your grease trap, it's really convenient to have that equipment close by all in one location so that when your engineers are designing the size and placement of your grease trap, it makes it a lot easier if they're not doing grease coming from five places in your kitchen. If it's coming from just one general area, much, much easier on your engineers. Got it. Um, So I think that wraps everything we were going to talk about before we did some of the design comparisons. Uh, we're going to share your screen, uh, but I don't want to cut you short. Is there anything you want to drop on us before we take another break? Thank our sponsors. I think I probably geeked out enough. No, I'm, just, I'm <laughs> loving it. We could, I could keep on going, but this is this has been a lot of fun. So one more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food costs in real time. The beauty of Margin Edge is that the information is immediately available. You take a picture and boom, you have access to it just in time. And everything that Margin Edge does is aimed at making your restaurant more efficient. So what exactly do you get with Margin Edge? With Margin Edge, you get automatic invoice processing. You can do this by either taking photos with their app, scanning slash emailing files, or integrating it with a electronic data interchange. You can get daily controllable P&L, including labor data. You can get recipe costing and menu analysis tools, not to mention you also get inventory management and actual versus theoretical usage reports. Margin Edge gives you the prime cost daily, so there are no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets real-time data to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends. With supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge will cover your onboarding. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We are back, and Stephanie is going to take us through some floor plans. Pro, what good good examples and bad examples, and I'm really excited for this part. So get into it. Sure. Um, well, if you're looking at the screen, uh, you will see a lot of stuff. And if you're just listening, let me describe for you what we're seeing here. This is a production kitchen for a restaurant that's got about 250 seats inside and another hundred and some on outside. So it's a good size restaurant. So it's a good size kitchen. But the reason I'm showing you this plan is it has some really great design features. If you're looking at this and seeing a bunch of shapes that look like little hexagons, those are item numbers. When you have a professional kitchen designer create your kitchen plan for you, they'll give you a drawing that looks something like this with symbols for all the equipment. And then there'll be these little hexagons or sometimes they're ovals with a little number in them that just cross references to a list. A lot of these symbols, you can probably look at these items and go, oh, yeah, I recognize what that looks like from above. It's a fryer or it's a charbroiler. Other ones are very hard to interpret. So if there's things that your designer is showing you on a drawing, ask questions. Don't be nervous about saying, oh, you know, I don't know what this thing is, thinking that they're not going to think you're a, a good client. Ask them the questions. So let me show you what's great about this kitchen design. Is this so just I'm a kitchen? For the, sorry, what's that? Is this just a kitchen? Yes. This is, it feels like there's so much going on here, but keep going. Sorry. Well, there is a lot going on here. This is a kitchen, actually. There's a kitchen, and then to the left, there's sort of an art thing here. This is a bar. Okay. And then we've also got uh, the upper left, there's a small sort of contained service station with, you know, a soda gun and coffee equipment. And there's another one like that in the upper right. But the kitchen itself is the majority of what you're seeing here. This drawing isn't showing you the restaurant itself. It's not showing you the seats or the host area or anything like that. So the things that go really well in this design, we talk about this principle of forward flow, right? Well, this kitchen Goods come in through this door that's on the right, and immediately by the door, we have a sort of a janitorial closet. So if you've got stuff that's dirty or whatever, you could deal with it. But more importantly, goods come in and they go right into storage. So we've got a walk-in refrigerator complex here. This has 
sort of basic walk-in refrigerator. There is a freezer that opens up into the refrigerator, and that's good design because if you open a freezer directly into your kitchen, you're going to get a lot of condensation, and that's going to freeze up immediately, and you're going to get that door sticking. So they've got their freezer opening into their fridge. I like that. It's also a great way to save on utilities. They also have a keg refrigerator that opens up directly into the kitchen. Some people like to have that open directly into the bar area, but in this case, the bar is a little ways away. So they have all the refrigeration together. That saves you on refrigeration panels. And it's also a good idea because the floor underneath your refrigerator, typically what you'll do is create a depression, about a six-inch deep depression for the floor of the refrigerator to sit in. People don't think about refrigerators as having a floor, but they do. It has to be an insulated floor. You're going to have problems. So having it all in one location is really smart. I would imagine this also saves on energy too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Having all this together is certainly an energy uh, saver. Now they've got refrigeration elsewhere in this kitchen. I'll show you in a minute, but in addition to all the refrigeration being together at the quotation marks back of the kitchen, Also, they have their dry storage area, which is to the left of that walk-in refrigerator complex. And their dry storage area, oops, their dry storage area is, uh, I think, well-planned because they're using every corner for the most part. You'll see that the shelving units go right into the corners. A lot of people don't realize that you, you can go around those posts to get things out of your storage. It's just you have to think through what am I storing and how big is it? So they've got their dry storage area. So goods are coming in the back door, going into storage, coming out of storage and going into prep. So in front of the refrigeration here, we've got a prep station. We've got uh, a table for dry prep. So we've got some ingredient bins for maybe it's rice or flour or sugar. So maybe this is a station for baking. And on the other side of that, a refrigerated space, I've got a dual sink vegetable prep station. Remember I mentioned putting the sinks in the middle? Mm-hmm. It's a great example. You know, you can take goods out and wash them, peel them, and then you've got them ready to put in pans or what have you. And now they can be moved to the refrigeration that's on the cooking line. So this mm-hmm. item here, item 57, those are reaching refrigerators. In addition, you've got your hoods are all in the same location. So I say hoods. This kitchen has two class one hoods. It's got a big one in the front for the cooking line. And that cooking line consists of a whole bank of fryers. They've got a lot of frying capacity here. They've got a dump station, right? We talked about a place where you can dump to the left of the fryers. So you've got a dump station. And that also is separating those fryers from their big charbroiler which they have a looks like a 36-inch uh, charbroiler. And then they've got, a, a in this case, a rotary broiler, one of the ones that's sort of like a car wash. You put the items through and it goes right through, like you don't have to do any work. So all of that is under one hood. And then on the back side, they've got what looks to be a saute station, a small tilt scale, or tilt kettle, maybe for soups or stocks, and they've got a convection oven. So this is a nice setup because this small station with the convection oven, the saute range and the kettle, this is what sort of bulk production, it's not a la minute, it's not stuff being done to order. You're cooking bulk items 
And then along the front is where we have our alimanute or things that are being cooked to order. Yeah, and I would point out too, and, and, and just a reminder, we're talking about, we're referencing a graphic right now. If you head over to YouTube, we do have a YouTube channel. This video will be there for you as well. Uh, also, it will be at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. But uh, where what Stephanie is describing right now, where there's the range and the convection oven and the tilt, um, what's the expression again? A tilt? A tilt kettle. A tilt kettle. A little countertop kettle there. It's right, like, it's it's adjacent to the prep area areas that we were talking about earlier. So now if you're prepping, like, so you have the refrigerator, which is right next to the prep area, which is right next to this like cook prep area. So if you're doing all the prep, all you got to do is turn around and put stuff on the range or in the kettle or in the, the oven. It's, it's really smooth. It, it's really smooth. And it also puts all your ventilation in one location, mm-hmm. which saves you on ductwork. Yeah. So it's not only smooth from an ergonomic standpoint, it's smooth from a financial standpoint. Yeah. Um, a couple other things I want to point out. Remember I mentioned about having tall things on the end. Mm-hmm. So they have their two reach and refrigerators facing the cooking line on either end to help channel some of the air. Um, but they don't have the hood extending over that refrigeration because you don't need to, right? Your, your refrigerators don't need a hood over it and hoods are expensive. So you only want to put the hood exactly where it needs to go and no further. Other things I like about this design. So I mentioned the aisle that goes between your cooking equipment and your pass or serve out counter. That should be about 36 inches. And that's pretty much what this plan is showing you. And there's plenty of width on this pass to allow both people to prepare things, either plate them or add sauces or or even maybe do some salad work or what have you. But there's plenty of room on the side where the service staff are picking up. That's one thing we didn't talk much about when we talked about kitchen design, but I want to point it out now, which is the flow of your servers, right? We talked about forward flow as being really important in the previous session that we talked about a couple weeks ago. This kitchen does a great job. You'll notice up in the upper left, there is a door marked enter and there's a door marked exit. And those doors are not the same door. (laughs) That is a good thing in a busy restaurant like this one with this many seats. They have a distinct flow where servers come in, they go through the enter door. And you'll notice that right next to the enter door is another space that has, it looks like a prep table with two sinks And it looks like a salad makeup. This is your cold food line. So this restaurant is big enough to justify having enough staff that you've got a cold kitchen or a cold prep area and hot foods. So servers can come in, immediately pick up cold items, then move not too many feet over to where they're picking up hot items. Right across from where they pick up hot items is a beverage station. So if they need to pick up any items there, then they can head to the exit door, which is right beside it, and then back out into the kitchen. So it's a nice, clean loop for servers. They don't have to backtrack. And they're not going very deep into the kitchen to get stuff. I like how this works. Now, if you are watching this rather than listening to it, and you're saying, yeah, that's all fine, but what about the dirty dishes, right? You talked about servers coming in to the restaurant or to the kitchen with a, a tray of dirty dishes. The dishwashing area is way over here on the right-hand side. You've got a dirty dish drop, and then you've got soil dishes that get pre-rinsed at this sink, 
And then they go into a large rack conveyor dish machine. It's a big enough restaurant to justify the kind that's like a car wash, right? Takes the rack from you instead of you having to open a door and put it in yourself. And then there's a clean dish table on the other side. This is nicely designed, but you might think, gee, it's in the wrong part of the kitchen because servers have to cross all the way across the kitchen to drop it. Well, this restaurant is not using servers for clearing tables. They have busters. So you'll notice there is another door right by the wear washing area where busters can come in, drop off dirty dishes. And if they need to get water or some beverage stuff to take to a table, it's right there on the other side of that door. So the design of this kitchen takes into account how this operator wants to run their restaurant. They thought it through before they laid it out. So I really think that's an excellent way to think about it. Did you have a hand in designing this kitchen? I did not, but I will tell you that one of my former students designed this kitchen. Man, I would love so, to know. I guess indirectly. Kitchen. I'm sort of like a grandmother to this kitchen. Are I you guess. allowed to say the name of this restaurant or is that confidential? I am not going to say the name of this restaurant because sometimes these plans are provided to me under cover of darkness. Ah. <laughs> but I will tell you that this is a restaurant that is in a warm weather location. It is a custom built building for this restaurant. So it's out on a site. It's not in a, an existing building. It was built specifically for this corporate location, corporate location. Got it. Uh, how many people, how many seats does this rest? 250 inside and about a hundred and some think, odd outside. I think you mentioned that when we started. I yeah. Imagine. So it's a good size. The, and you might look at this kitchen and say, it does seem very generous. Um, there's a couple of the things going on here that you should be aware of that make it a little bigger. One is it has an office in the kitchen. I'm a big fan of that if you can. And there actually is an office with a window. So this little window allows somebody working in the office to see the prep area and they can see the back door mm. of the restaurant. I think that's a really nice feature if you can get away with it. A lot of restaurants, if they have an office at all, it's tucked in a basement somewhere on a mezzanine and it's way away from the action. I like this one because the office is really in the middle of things. And so the management can really take a look at what's happening. They also have two monster ice machines. These are massive. And they're massive because this restaurant does a lot of fried seafood and they get a lot of seafood in that needs to be put on crushed ice. Um, so they have a, a nice cuber and they have a nice uh, a crushed ice machine. And both of them have big trench drains in front of them. That's another nice feature. Wherever you have ice, you want to have a floor drain because that ice, when you scoop it out, some of it's going to fall on the floor. It's going to melt. It's going to be slippery. So if you can get a floor drain and ideally a big, long trench drain in front of your ice machine, that is going to be a happy thing for everybody. Now, see these ice machines are right in front of the dry storage. Uh, is there benefit to that? Yes, because that is a cooler part of the kitchen. It isn't so much that it's in part of dry storage necessarily, but it's away from the hotter parts of the kitchen. If you're going to have a piece of equipment break in your kitchen, it's going to be the ice machine. <laughs> and we'll talk more about that next week. So you want to give it a fighting chance to work well. And so having it away from the hottest, most humid parts of your kitchen is going to make them last longer. Yeah. And on this layout, it's, it's, it's tucked like right, it's right next to the dry storage It's right next to the, the dry prep. And it's also close to the refrigerator, but I'm guessing yeah. that the engine, the motor for the refrigerator isn't anywhere near that, that spot. Yeah, the, the compressors and the condensing unit yeah. um, the, the, for this refrigerator. The stuff that throws actually, off the heat. <laughs> yeah, the thing that gives off heat, they're actually remotely located. Okay. And when we talk next time about your 
picking your refrigeration. We'll talk about whether you want a top-mounted or remote refrigeration system and whether it should be air-cooled or water-cooled. In this particular case, it's a big corporate kitchen. By corporate, I mean this is a chain restaurant, so they had some money to spend. Um, they went with kind of the the Cadillac approach by having remote compressors. And I would imagine, I think it's also too important to point out that this restaurant, whoever they are, probably did not get this as good on the first try. This is probably location like 100, I would imagine. And they've had a lot of trial and error. So I think it's important to not be too hard on yourself when you're just getting started. Uh, it, it, it comes with time. It, it does. It does. And also, this is a, a, I will call it a voluptuous kitchen in many ways. It's very spacious. Yeah. Um, I think I would try to tighten it a little bit if I were doing this myself. But because this is a custom-built building, it's corporate, they they have the space, and this is in a market that's the real estate's not that expensive. If you're putting this in New York State, <laughs> you'd be tightening this up in a big yeah. way because the real estate's so costly. Um, so there's lots of things here that, that make it a little easier. But I like to show this kitchen because there's a lot of good stuff. There are some things I would change. I'm curious, um, what would you change? You, well, you don't have to let your student because know. This is cu- because <laughs> this is custom built, one of the things I would do differently is I would actually try to have the goods go into storage from the back. I mentioned that the goods are coming in the receiving door. Please use your cursor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're going through the prep area into storage. If you really wanted to make this amazing is you would have two sets of doors and there'd be a, a receiving door in the back. So your goods would come in sort of at the lowest or the bottom of this drawing. They would go into refrigeration and then they would come straight out into prep and there wouldn't be the backtracking through the prep area with goods coming from. So there would be a door directly from outside into the refrigerator. Yes. Got it. And and the dry storage too, which means that your receiving function would have to happen out of the line of sight of your office. So, you know, there'd be some tweaks. I might move that office uh, into a different location. And on the plan, I'm sort of indicating the lower right. I might swap some things around and put the office in this location so it can see both deliveries and what's going on in the kitchen. Interesting. If I were to do that backdoor access to the storage, that'd be the first major change I would make. I'm really excited to see the example, uh, the poor example of kitchen layout, <laughs> but I, I don't want to cut you short. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we move to the There's next? one other thing I want to touch on, which I didn't mention earlier, and it's not a very exciting topic, but it's hand sinks. And it's something else I would change about this drawing to some extent. The codes require, health codes require that you have a hand sink within 20 feet of every point in the kitchen. And that hand sink can't be in a separate room. So on this plan, there's a hand, there are actually three located in the kitchen. And if you imagine a 20 foot radius circle around each of those hand sinks, you'll see that pretty much the entire kitchen is covered. So you're going to need to figure out where those hand sinks need to go. A, because your employees are going to need them, right? You want one close to wear washing. So if somebody has got gunk all over their hands, they can wash their hands before they leave that part of the kitchen. Certainly near a prep space, certainly near where food is being handled, you need hand sinks. So you want to position them so that the whole kitchen is covered. But the thing I don't like about this design is some of these hand sinks are sort of exposed. And if they're moving carts around, and this is a big enough kitchen, they probably are, you can get banged up pretty easily with carts. So 
think about having your hand sink sort of tucked away, still central, still places you can access them from a 20 foot radius, but not sticking out into an aisle way where parts can bash into it or people can bang their hips into it. Beautiful. Uh, thank you for taking us through this. Now let's, let's see that uh, poor example. <laughs> okay. This poor example, I've got don't do this written <laughs> as I circled the kitchen. Um, this is a restaurant. I'm not going to name it, obviously. I think it's closed, but I'm still not going to name so it. The circle around uh, this, the, this, this red circle is just the kitchen because I do see there's dining room stuff in here. As well. There's dining room stuff on this plan. This floor plan, actually, I got from a, a magazine that was pointing out this restaurant as a paragon of design. It won design awards. And, you know, I'm not going to mention the architect. I'm not going to. Oh, my God, there's so much wrong with this. (laughs) Um, And if you're looking at the drawing, you'll see there are curves and there's funky sort of globby things sticking off the bar. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But I want to focus on the kitchen and the thing that I think is a problem about this kitchen. So like the one we just saw, goods come in a door that in this case is sort of off to the right. And we want those goods to go into storage. Well, the storage is all the way through the kitchen and in the back corner. So every good has to be brought through this narrow aisle and turn corner number one, corner number two, and then either go into a small walk-in refrigerator or they have a little bit of dry storage located sort of in the back kitchen here. But there's not that much storage. This is a much more um, chef-driven kitchen. It's not a corporate kitchen. They don't get deliveries the same way. The corporate kitchen gets big deliveries all at the same time, right? You know, the Cisco truck shows up and everything shows up. This is getting small deliveries frequently. So they don't have much storage in the kitchen, but it's all the way in the back. So first problem is from a forward flow standpoint, now when I want to use that stuff, it's one thing for things to come out of the walk-in refrigerator and right in front of it, I have a prep space. That's not bad. But if I need to get things to go on the line, the cooking line, it's a long, circuitous path from that refrigerator all the way backtracking through the prep area, past the wear washing area, around this corner, around that corner, around another corner, and now I can put it out here on the line. So this is not what you want, A, a path that has lots of turns, blind corners, and also I mentioned that wear washing is right in the middle of this space. So let's think about this idea of forward flow. Let's think about the servers or bussers picking up products or, or I should say picking up things from tables and dropping them off. So this plan shows the seating. So let's say I'm a server and I'm dealing with some tables down here in the lower right and I need to move up across the restaurant into the kitchen around a blind corner to drop off dirty dishes And if I am now picking up food, I've got to retrace my steps, go around that blind corner again. And then I'm picking up food from this open kitchen. This restaurant actually has a really interesting open kitchen effect. It has a hot open kitchen. And then there's a cold station with seats facing it. And so the idea was guests can sit there and watch the cold items being prepared and then see across that to the hot items as well which is very sexy, but it's extremely difficult on the staff because servers now, they can pick up hot items, but there's really nowhere for them to pick up the cold items. Mm. They kind of get them from behind the employees working the cold station. There's no real dish drop there. And you've got lots of backtracking, lots of cross traffic, lots of blind corners. 
um, it drives me nutty when I see this. When, so you have the entrance to the, in the top right hand of the image. Uh, what's to the right of that? Is that the refrigeration or is that an office? This isn't uh, the upper corner is an office. So that's one thing they did do well is they have an office right there, right by the back door. So they can see who's coming and going and they can see deliveries as they come in. That's all good. But because they have this sort of odd configuration. Now, I shouldn't hammer the designers too much because they had a really difficult space to work with. Right in the very middle of this entire space is a fire stair from the building above. So this restaurant is on the ground floor of an office building. And that office building has fire stairs in it, obviously. And this fire stair sort of you have to bend the kitchen around it. And so it was a, it was a challenge for the designers. But that said, they kind of made it hard on themselves because this narrow aisle that we have the food coming through, we've got service going back and forth. If you need anything at all during service, you've got to go through that narrow little corridor with a blind corner. This is a, bo- a classic bottleneck. And a good way to tell when before you build your kitchen, once you've laid it out, Pretend to be items, right? Imagine I am the path of a potato and I'm being delivered and I'm going into storage and then I'm going to be prepared and then I'm going to be taken to the cooking line for cooking. Draw it out. Take a pencil and draw it out and see where do you have backtracking? Where is there cross traffic? Where can you make improvements? And think about a food item. Think about maybe a keg of beer if you're doing kegs. You know, how does that move through the kitchen? Trace the path of dirty dishes. Trace the path of a dirty saute pan. So you can start to see where you've either forgotten something or you've got bottlenecks or clogs or or cross traffic. It's a great tool. And if the designers had done this, maybe they did, but they just decided they would live with it. Um, But boy, I would would make a lot of changes if this were a, a blank slate that I was given to make this restaurant more productive. Are there any other glaring issues with this example that you haven't pointed out? Well, I, I think one of the glaring issues isn't really a kitchen issue, but seeing as we're talking about good design, curves are not your friend. Um, sometimes you'll see uh, architects want to give you a curve, either a curved bar or, and you can have U-shaped bars and we can talk about bar design and some other podcast perhaps but when you have a curve kitchen equipment does not come in curves it's it's very rectilinear and so you want to try to have your kitchen space be rectilinear same thing with your bar if possible and certainly in places out in the dining room even though we're not talking about dining room design i do want to pick on this restaurant has a circular private dining room right in the middle of the restaurant And it's got a big, you know, looks like a 10-top table there in the middle of the restaurant in this curved room. And it wastes a lot of space. You're paying for that space. So not only is it tough to design with a curve, because now you've got equipment that has little kind of gaps between items, because to make equipment go around a curve, you're obviously going to have to angle it. So now you've got spaces where stuff can fall, or you're going to have to fill it in with extra pieces of stainless steel. That's going to cost you more money. So A, it's not very efficient, but also you're paying for space you can't use. So curves are tricky. It doesn't mean you can never have one, but boy, you should really be careful if you're planning curves in your facility in any way. Awesome. I've really loved this conversation and it's been 
packed full of great advice and examples. And just a reminder, this, this, the end of this episode was very visual heavy. If you head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash eight five seven, we will link, we will embed the uh, video right into the show notes. You can also head over to our YouTube channel and find the videos over there. Uh, this is episode 857. Uh, anything we have not discussed before we wrap things up and say goodbye. Well, I'm going to stop my share so you don't have to look at the drawing anymore because I'm sure you're seeing all kinds of other things. You're like, wow, this is crazy. Um, again, my, my strongest advice to everybody when it comes to kitchens is visit kitchens of places you admire. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. And remember that the choices you are making, the more you know about your operation and how you want to run it, the better choices you will make. But there's nothing really that can't be solved with a good plan. Beautiful. So spend spend time here on this. So this is part two of our three-part workshop on kitchen design and layout. Uh, part one was episode 800 and 55 if you want to go back and listen to that if you haven't yet this is episode 857 if you want to check out the videos and then we'll be back here uh next week episode 859 where we're going to be covering uh basically equipment all the things you need to know about purchasing equipment and what you just you don't know until you know again um i i just can't say enough how much value you're dropping on us thank you so much uh, any final words before we say goodbye I'm just delighted. I'm happy to help. If you have questions um, about anything we've talked about today, um, give me an, uh, drop me a line. You can send a note to Eric and he can reach me or you can reach me through the, the Restaurant Unstoppable Network as well. Um, I'm happy to point you in directions that might be helpful to you. And I'm, I'm willing, I, I'll say it right now, uh, Stephanie is paying me uh, a commission and anybody I send her away as far as uh, for consulting. And I like to let people know up front because you are supporting the show when you do uh, connect with the people I have on the show. So um, I think it's $300. Maybe we can add this out if I'm, if I'm not right. $300 an hour, correct? As you're, you're going that is it. correct. I am expensive, but yeah. I am worth it. We, yeah. One hour can give you hopefully a lot of value. Yes. And, uh, she kicks me 50 bucks out of that. So, um, I'm full trans, full transparency here. Thank you for your support. If you're using our links and connecting with the people we're trying to connect you with. And with that said, we'll see you for part three of this session, all about equipment next week. I hope you guys can make it. Uh, thank you so much, Stephanie. It is always a pleasure, Eric. We'll see you next week. I gotta say it. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. There we are. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Stephanie Robson. Uh, just such a wealth of knowledge. There's, I know, I know you guys are learning some stuff back home. I know I'm learning plenty by just being a part of these conversations. Uh, so this is part two of our three-part series. Uh, next week at 10 a.m. Eastern time, we're going to be live to go over equipment. This is one you're not going to want to miss. So if you're not already a member of Restaurant Unstoppable Network and you want to be in the conversation, you want to be a part of the conversation, you want to ask your questions, be sure to join the network. And if the 30 bucks a month to be in the network and have access to these people I'm getting on the show and to have access to each other is a little outside of your, your price range, I understand. So email me, Eric, E-R-I-C at restaurantunstoppable.com. I will get you a, a 30 day pass to the network so you can be a part of these conversations. Uh, I mean, you could just reach out to Stephanie and, and do those one-on-one chats, uh, but that's going to cost you a pretty penny 
or you could just join the network, be a part of these conversations and, and ask your questions uh, live on the show. And um, we even do a little bit of a post recording questions, Q and a for the more sensitive questions. Uh, so not to me, workshops scheduled as of right now uh, going into the future uh, Stephanie did mention that she has her friend that's a specialist in helping restaurants deal with critters so maybe that could be a potential workshop but I, I want you guys to know that part of my responsibility part of my role is to go to work for you and I'm here to create content based, based off of what your needs are and what your challenges are so you have to reach out to me you have to email me eric at restaurantstoppable.com and let me know where the pain is so I can go out there and find the people to serve you and we can uh, create content if the odds are if, if you're challenged with this thing if this is a struggle of yours you're not alone other people have the same challenges so help me out and uh, let me know where the pain is so i can go to work uh and we are going to be in new orleans on january 30th through february 4th so if you're in new orleans and you want to connect with us uh please reach out i love connecting with my listeners and if you have any guests we should be getting on the show put them on my radar uh we're always looking for the next person to make an example of all right that's it for today until next time Peace out.